So if you've got a Bible with you, let me invite you to open it up to the book of Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 15. We've been walking through the book of Proverbs for the last few weeks, but we're taking a break because it's Connect Sunday. We're going to get back to Proverbs next week. But today we're going to be in Romans chapter 15 and just think about what is it that we do as a church? What is it that we're aiming at as the church of Brook Hills so that we're clear and we hit the reset button all together? So if you're new, our our purpose is, and we say this a lot, we've said it for the past couple of years, our purpose is to love Jesus, to grow in Jesus, and to make disciples of Jesus. And I hope increasingly as a church, as church members, we're holding on to that as the big idea. These are the, the things that we're pursuing by the grace of God that are so clear to us, shining out from the pages of Scripture, and I hope we're going to see some of that even here in this text in Romans chapter 15. So if you would follow along as I begin reading, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, now he's going to quote the Old Testament, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, accept one another, or it's translated, welcome one another, just as Christ has also accepted or welcomed you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised, that is, the the Israelites, the Jews. He became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers, And so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. And now he's just thinking, under divine inspiration, he's thinking of passages in the Old Testament. As it is written, therefore, I will sing praise among the nation. I will praise you among the nations. I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, reference to Jesus, the Messiah who would come. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you a question as we get started here, and the question is this. Is is your Christianity an experiential Christianity? Is it a Christianity that has, has made that critical migrating movement from your head to your heart to where it sends off these fireworks in your heart that activate a life desires to be pleasing to Christ and to bring him glory in all that we do. Is your Christianity experiential? You know, we can settle for something so far short 
of what God intends for us as followers of Jesus Christ. I would submit to you that God put this text in the Bible. He put Romans 15 in the Bible to call us out of status quo Christianity. He put Romans 15 in the Bible to call us out of going through the motions, religious formality, and to pull us into a rich experience of the grace of God. This last verse, verse 13, is unashamedly, unapologetically experience-based. Look at it. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you. So he's going to start pouring something into believers. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I think, where do I sign up? So is that what Christianity is? It's God, the God of hope pouring joy into me, pouring peace, power, and hope into me. That's why I say it is a highly experiential verse that he's capping this off with. This this experiential encounter with God is meant to affect the way that Christians live. Matter of fact, all the theology of this passage, everything that we learn about God in this passage is theology that's meant to shape who we are as his people. Just just look at it with me and you'll see it. Verse two, each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, verse three, for Christ did not please himself. So it's revealing something about Christ and it's saying, the same's true of you. He didn't please himself. We shouldn't please ourselves but build others up. Verse seven, accept one another or welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So the welcome of the church is downstream of the welcome of Christ for the glory of God. Then the last verse in our passage, look at it one more time, verse 13, it speaks of God as what? The God of hope, and then you see the God of hope filling believers, and they are overflowing with what? Hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you just see this constant relationship between what we see in God, what we behold in God, what we experience in God, and then you start to see it in the church, you start to see it in the way that that Christians engage the world, the city, the nations, a people who are alive to God. And so I want us to look at this morning with our remaining time, three characteristics of a church that's alive to God. Number one, beautiful diversity. A church that's alive to God is marked by beautiful diversity. You, uh, you know, you read through the New Testament and, and you can hear a fair amount of fighting and disputing and arguing going on and a lot of the arguing is going on between believers. It's going on in the church. Now, in fairness, it's the first century. A lot of these letters were written just within... 30 years, 40 years after Jesus gave his life on the cross. And so they're, they're living in an unprecedented moment in history. Just think about it. So, so before Jesus died on the cross and offered his body as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, 
God's faithful people knew what it would look like to live a godly life. They knew they were generally on the same page when it comes to the Old Testament commands and the Old Testament laws. But now, what do we do? Now, with word that Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and offered the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices, what do we do with our lambs? What do we do with our goats? What do we do with that massive altar that was built hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the temple? Is that thing just defunct? What do we do with the temple? Do we keep it? Do we sell it? Do we repurpose it, turn it into housing in, in Jerusalem? What, what do we do? Do we turn it into the mall of Jerusalem? What do we do? Do we even need this thing anymore? They're having to work this out for the first time. They've never had to even think about this before. Circumcision, is it still a thing or is it not a thing? Do the Gentiles need to do it when they come into the faith? And then they were seeing, if you're a Jew and if you've trusted in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jesus comes and you put your trust in him as Messiah, and then you get the impression that these Gentile believers, God bless them, but they don't know which way is up. It's like they've never even read the Old Testament. They're completely unfamiliar. We could say Moses and they have no idea who we're even talking about, right? And so they don't know. And then the Apostle Paul particularly seems to write to these Gentiles and kind of let them off the hook for things that we've been on the hook for, for generations, things that have mattered, symbols that matter to to his people. So again, you come to the New Testament and you hear all that bickering going on, Jews and Gentiles. And a lot of it, a lot of that fussing can be explained, this is in your notes, by the fact that Jesus is in the process of bringing very different people into one family. That was, that was the new thing that was happening on the ground, the new covenant, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This was new, and he's bringing very different kinds of people into one family. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, that is through Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you, now he's talking to Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. That's the new thing that was going on in light of the new covenant. We're all one family. We're one people. We're all citizens. You belong in here. This is the household of God. This is as much yours as it is ours because you've trusted in the Messiah who is the way. To God, And then come back to our text and look at verse 5. Chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you, these two, two different groups of people, to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, accept, welcome one another just as Christ also accepted or welcomed you to the glory of God. So what's going on in our passage? Well, Paul is trying to wrap up some things that he's been talking about. If we come into chapter 15, we're joining a conversation that has already been in progress. In chapter 14, he's been talking about these controversial matters of, okay, so what, let's work it out. What do we do about the food laws? What do we do about honoring certain days and feasts and holy days that were prominent in the Old Testament. He's working on that stuff because they have different views in the church and chapter 14 is all about that. And then you come into chapter 15 and he talks about two groups of people, the strong 
and the weak. This is in your notes. The weak here, if you go back and read chapter 14, the weak are convinced that God's acceptance depends on one's willingness to keep Old Testament laws. That's who Paul is referring to when he talks about the weak, the ones who, whose conscience is bound up with the dietary code of the Old Testament. They cannot, eat, I just, we just can't eat that. We didn't ever eat that. We can't start eating it now. We're too familiar with what God has said in his word. And so they're, they're believing that uh, their acceptance before God depends on their willingness to keep Old Testament laws. You know, I think it's probably interesting in the first century when Paul uses the phrase strong and weak, and I'm willing to bet that the ones who were referred to as the weak were the exact ones who thought they were the strong. And that's so true even today in the church. The ones who think that they're strong tend to be strong in conviction. Every hill is worth dying on. This matters. I am not going to give an inch, right? I have strong convictions. I don't do that. Other people might do that. I don't do that. I don't even do this, right? I, I don't just avoid the things that are prohibited by Scripture. I'm adding some new stuff just to be safe. I'm adding new prohibitions that don't even exist in the Bible, right? In any case, the Apostle Paul is addressing this, and he calls those weak ones with an afflicted conscience about eating certain foods. And he resolves the conflict. He says, when it comes to the dispute in hand, the matter of food laws, he says, there is no unclean food anymore. The dietary laws are no longer binding on the people of God. That existed for a time. It's gone, right? Bacon's back on the menu. Pork tips are on the menu, right? He's basically saying, you, we don't, food doesn't commend us to God. It doesn't get us any closer to God. It doesn't keep us from God. You eat, you enjoy his provision. That, that's why he says in chapter 14, if you just want to flip the page, chapter 14, verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, he's speaking under divine inspiration, so it's over. That, that's the verdict. Nothing's unclean. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. And what is he saying in chapter 14 and landing on in chapter 15? He's saying... Family comes first, not preference, not your own personal freedom. Family trumps freedom because you love your brother. And instead of just saying, hey, potluck gets to change. Potluck just became really awesome in light of the new covenant. So we get to bring all this stuff that we never got to eat before. And he says, well, well what if you bring that stuff and your Jewish brothers and sisters can't come now? What do you want? Do you, would you rather bacon or your brothers? Would you rather them at the table and you forego your freedom to eat that because you're free, right? Or, or are you willing to say, I want whatever allows you and me to sit at the same table? In the first century, to see a picture on the front page of the Jerusalem Times of Jews and Gentiles at the same table 
eating together, laughing, enjoying one another. That's, that's front page news. That gets the attention of a watching world. And the Apostle Paul says, that's what the gospel is meant to do to create that kind of love. In the midst of your diversity, in the midst of all the different opinions, it brings us together. The gospel allows that to happen. This is in your notes. The basis of Christian unity is this. God made us family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He made us family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I, um, I grew up in a small church that my, my dad and mom, they planted in New Orleans before I was born. That's my home city. And um, the, the building that we met in was not as large as this stage. It was maybe, yeah, but maybe half the size of this stage. It was a really small congregation. Um, but there was tremendous diversity in that congregation. There was glorious ethnic diversity. There was beautiful socioeconomic diversity in that church. My, um, some of my sitters were John and Mary Snowden. They were extremely poor. Uh, and sometimes we would spend Sunday afternoons together and they would, I would leave, with, leave church with them and we would hop on the bus, public transportation, and take it to their part of the city and go stay at their place for the afternoon and we'd go do free stuff. We'd walk around the park and they would buy me a little ice cream, which was just awesome. Right? And I just enjoyed that time. But they, they couldn't hide the fact that they had no education and very, very little money. And yet you look out in that congregation and sitting right next to them is one of the most well-to-do families in the whole church. Really the only family in the church that was financially well-to-do. And I remember the first time we had a special night of worship at the family of that um, just financially blessed family. They, they lived in Chateau Estates, which was the swanky neighborhood in Metairie. That's where they lived. And we went to Chateau, we drove into Chateau and just see these massive houses on, on both sides. And then we pull in and we go inside and they have a hardwood floor basketball court inside the house. And my brother and I are like, who does this? This is absolutely crazy. And we walked in the backyard and they had a built-in pool with a slide. Like, wow, we had never, you know, we didn't have anybody else in the church who had a swimming pool except for them. And there was an evening of worship at their house that they hosted. And there was our whole little congregation there in the living room and I stood next to this big, beautiful grand piano that nobody played, but it was just sat there. It was just gorgeous grand piano. And we took communion. I was maybe nine, maybe 10, but it's sealed in my mind that we took communion because they didn't warn my mom or my dad that it was gonna be real wine and uh, not grape juice. And I, you know, put it down and I, but my mom's eyes got this big and she looked down at me. I'm like, I'm sorry, I just, you know, <laughs> Lord forgive us. <laughs> and you look out in that room and and you see, there's, there's Brother Dave. He's at our house often. He's been blind since birth. And there's Diane, and she's a single woman who's just the epitome of awesomeness. She is all the cool stuff in New Orleans rolled into a person, and it's Diane. And there's Fred and his wife, who's from Japan, Tani. And there's Miss Honey, and her husband's not a believer, and they have 11 children, and she taught me the word of God in Sunday school, and she literally taught me how to tie my shoes 
when they came undone. And there's Brother Walt Parker and his wife, Monica, and their daughter, Candace, who's like a sister to me, and, and Monica's twin sister, Veronica, who was married as well. Her husband didn't come to church very often, but Veronica, and they both called me. They added an S to the end of my name. They called me Matthews. Every time they call me, they call me Matthews. And there's Mr. Dutch back there. He's holding the cup and he's holding the bread. He's the oldest man in the congregation, and he tells the same joke every Sunday. Walk in, and he says, your face hurt? He's got a real strong New Orleans accent. Your face hurt? I say, no. He goes, it's killing me. And then he busts out laughing. And I'm going to hear that joke next Sunday and next Sunday over and over. He never gets tired of it. He laughs at that joke every single Sunday. And there's the the couple that owns this sprawling house. And there's John and Mary Snowden who ride public transportation back to their place in New Orleans. We stood there, the oddest mixture of human beings. People who would never find each other. People who would never become close friends by the rules of the world. And yet there we held a cup and we held the bread that brought us together. Beautiful diversity bought by Christ, only explainable in light of the gospel. The church comes alive in beautiful diversity. The church comes alive not when we hunker down with people who are just like us. That's third page news. That shows up everywhere. Nobody's surprised by that. Front page news is, look at this ragtag group of people from every which place with all kinds of different socioeconomic brackets, and yet there they are unburdening their souls, praying for one another, looking like friends, calling each other brother and sister. It's like family in there. Who can explain this? The gospel can explain it. Ephesians chapter 2, the wall that divided us outside the body of Christ, that wall has been broken down and now we're one family in him. A church that's alive to God is characterized by beautiful diversity too. A church that's alive to God is characterized by extravagant welcome. Extravagant welcome. We have... We have an incredible hospitality team here at the Church of Brook Hills, right? You saw them on your way in. They were probably slapping high fives to the kids. They were, and they're, they're outside, rain or shine, hot or cold, they're out there, right, greeting us, saying welcome as we come in. Why, why do we do that? There's a theological reason behind the hospitality ministry of the Church of Brook Hills. It's supposed to be making a statement, a kind of parable. It's supposed to be saying this truth that's in your notes, if you belong to Jesus, you enjoy the full acceptance and wide-armed welcome of God. And you're supposed to, on your way into here, whether you've been coming for 20 years or it's your very first Sunday, you see those men and women, sometimes children, and they're saying, you're here, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. And it's supposed to be reminiscent of a greater, grander, richer welcome, the welcome of God himself who says to you as you come in to gathered worship, you're here. Welcome. Welcome. Why? Because we worship a God who welcomes us in Christ. We worship a God who says, hey, disciples, get out there. What do you want us to do? Invite them to a feast. Who? Everyone. (laughs) 
Everyone, every side street, back street, every, every part of town, walk there with these invitations and tell them there's a feast and tell them you don't need to bring any money. You show up at the door, you come inside, and there's plenty for everyone. That's, that's the God that we worship. There should be a kind of radiance about our welcome because we're called, verse 7, to welcome as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I got a new image of welcome this week. Our friend, uh, Nate Farrow, who preached last Sunday, Nate and Rachel, his wife, they posted a picture of their daughter, Lila, this week, and I thought, yeah, there she is, right? How's that for the leader of the hospitality team in 2040? <laughs> Look, if she stands out there and she says, welcome, to the Church of Brook Hills. You not only believe her, you're gonna be back next Sunday. There is this wide-armed, effusive, joyful welcome. It should look like that. There should be something contagious about our joy. I get the impression when I read the book of Acts that it's like the early church for all their battles and struggles and persecution and all of that. It was like they said to a watching world, hey, we've got a secret. We've got a secret to joy. Follow us. It's back here. We've got a key. It unlocks the door to real, lasting joy. And they said that, and the world started believing them. When a church is alive to God, it displays this in a warmth of welcome. Again, the ESV version, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That, that is the theme verse, by the way, of the hospitality team at the Church of Brook Hills. I hope it's the theme verse of the entire church. I hope we all bring that verse on board. I said this when we were walking through the City on a Hill series and we we're talking about what are our defining features, what are the values that we treasure as a church from God's word, and we walk through one after another after another. When we got to pursue kindness, we welcome graciously. One of the things I said at the beginning of that message was we could get all the other ones right, all other seven right, and if we get this one wrong, we're just doing projects. We're just doing spiritual chores, but there's not this heartfelt transformation that's gone on that makes us infectious in the world. In our welcome, people should see something of the wide-armed welcome of Jesus himself. Let me say to you, I don't know, I could never by any means know what all of you brought with you into the room this morning. What pain you feel, if there's guilt, if you're shame-ridden, if you're weary, if you're tired, if you're burned out. I don't know. I don't know what baggage. I don't know where you've been, what you've been into. I don't need to. Jesus extends his arms over this entire room and says, come. Come to me. You tired? Come to me. You guilty? Come to me. You burdened, saddled with grief? Come to me. I welcome all of you. It's a glorious truth. Come, no forgiveness. Come, no peace. Put your life in his hands. You know what Christianity is? In essence, Christianity is, is an acknowledgement that we get to make together. And it, it feels so much safer that we get to say it together. We come out into the light, and I say to you, and you say to me, I'm terrible at running my own life. But Jesus is way better at it. So let's just trust him with our lives. 
Let's trust him for forgiveness. Let's trust him with the things we've done wrong. Let's, let's run to him. Let's connect Sunday. This is a great Sunday to remember the essence of this gospel message. This is a great Sunday to say from Romans chapter 15, verse 13, come experience that verse with us. Look again at that verse. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so as we're trusting Christ, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that is what Jesus died to make possible in the church. So have you trusted him? The one savior of the world, the one hope of the world, have you run to him and experienced God's welcome not just here, but the church's welcome, next point, reaches beyond its walls. Reaches beyond its walls. You know what's happening in verse 7 through 13 of our passage is we're being reminded of where the future is headed for those who are in Jesus, where the future is headed for those who trust in Jesus. And the answer to the question, where, is God is uniting a broken world under one king. That's where the future is headed. Look at verse 9. And so that Gentiles, the Gentiles were all the people outside of the Jews, so it's all the outsiders, all the nations, so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the outsiders, among the Gentiles, among the nations, I will sing praise to your name. Rejoice you Gentiles with his people, praise the Lord, all you outsiders, all you Gentiles and nations, let all the peoples praise him. In Isaiah, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. They will hope in him. Sometimes um, Christians do church like it's a club for insiders. You know, like you really can't come and experience warmth, friendship, support, care until you learn to do all the tricks, right? You, you, you show yourself, you pass the litmus test, and then we'll start to love you and show you care and tell you about the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. But look, do you know the original promise that was made to Abraham that got this whole thing started? The hinge of the whole Bible, in a very real sense, is Genesis chapter 12, when God comes to Abraham the patriarch and he just starts making promises He's not signing a contract of mutual work. You do this, quid pro quo. You do this, I'll do that, right? I'll meet you halfway. It is a unilateral covenant. He's saying, I'm just gonna, it's gonna be crazy how much I bless you. I'm gonna give you sons. Try to count the stars. You're not gonna be able to do it. I'm gonna give you sons you can't count. I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna make, you're gonna be my people and I'm gonna be your God. I'm gonna bless the daylights out of you. He makes this promise unrestrained, unconditioned promise. But then he says, the blessing isn't just for you. You don't just get to hoard this. It's gonna rain down on you in such supply, you're gonna have to start passing it around and it's gonna spread throughout the earth and all the families to the ends of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. That's the original promise. That was the plan from the beginning. All the nations blessed through him, and then you fast forward a couple of millennia, and you catch Jesus in Mark chapter 11, and he is in rare form. Jesus is screaming. 
He looks manifestly upset. He is flipping tables. He is cracking whips. And one wonders, what on earth has happened to Jesus? What has gotten into this man? And he doesn't leave you wondering. He answers the question, is it not written? And now he quotes the Bible. My house, that is the Father's house, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And Jesus is looking around and saying, where are they? He sees an insider's club in all directions. It's just hanging signs. Insider's club. Circus going on of all these people in there. And this place was supposed to be called the court of the Gentiles. In the original architectural drawings in the Old Testament, there was meant to be a space designed by God called the court on the blueprints of the Gentiles. And he's looking at said court and looking for said Gentiles. And he's not finding them. And he says, this is not okay. This is not the intention that we had from the beginning. This whole area was meant to be a place where outsiders would meet God, where outsiders could join the song of Israel. We built that as a preview window on purpose to draw the nations into the worship of God. We wanted to enlarge the circle. The temple was meant to enlarge the circle from the very beginning. The result of the church's diversity, unity, and welcome. Here's the goal. The result of the church's diversity, unity, and welcome is that Jesus is praised. That's the end goal. That's the purpose. How do we know the words so that in verse 9? So that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. God getting glory from all nations is the point. Look, as a church, let's just talk about us. It's Connect Sunday. Let's talk about us. We want every member of the Church of Brook Hills to have a passion for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Not just some, not just missions people, not just the global staff. Everybody, everybody passionate to see the nations exalt the King. The first missions project that we're funding through Roots and Reach is to give God's word to an unreached people group, the Baloch people group. To what end? Why do we want to give them a whole Bible? Verse 9, that they may glorify God for his mercy. Listen, when the church comes alive, we come alive to God's missionary heart for the world. When the church comes alive, we come alive to his desire to give all nations gladness and joy in Jesus Christ. And I want to close by just reminding us again, of the big vision of the Church of Brook Hills. We unpacked it in a series earlier this year, but here's, here's just the kind of salient, the short version of it. So Brook Hills, let's, and I hope many of you can finish these sentences, let's love Jesus. Let's love Jesus. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and lived a compelling life. He was in prison for 12 years for preaching the gospel. He could have got out the moment he stopped. If he just said, I'll stop, they were going to let him out. And he said, I'm not going to stop. As soon as, I get out, as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to tell more people the gospel. And so they said, all right, you get to stay there. Catholic scholars came to the prison cell. This is a famous story. And they said, quote, Bunyan, if you keep talking about the lavish love of God, 
the people will behave however they want. And Bunyan said, on the contrary, if people are convinced of the lavish love of God for them, they'll behave however he wants. They'll be changed by the love of God, not by his rules, not by his commands. Grace will come blasting into their soul and it will create new desires. If you meet Jesus Christ, you can't stay the same. If you meet him, the real Jesus, you cannot stay the same. Your life is gonna change. It's gonna start changing. The more you know him, the more you're gonna love him. The more you love him, the more you're gonna start trusting him. The more you trust him, the more you're gonna start giving him more and more just control. This is, this is good, I'm glad it's yours. This is good, I'm glad it's yours. When we see him, so this is first, love him. Second, so love Jesus, grow in Jesus. Grow in Jesus. If you become a member of the Church of Brook Hills, you are coming into a family that is growing. And I don't just mean growing numerically, though we've had some problems in the parking lot out there, and there has, has been growth. Praise God for that. But the aim is not numerical growth. The aim is growing to be like Jesus, growing to be more conformed to his image. That's the big one. That's the thing that we're primarily looking at. You know, they say that, um, that married couples start to look more alike the longer they're married. Not because their physical traits are necessarily changing, but because you say it the way that she says it in your own tone of voice, but you, you inflect the way that she inflects as well. There, we just find ourselves doing things, saying things the same way. The same thing is true in the church. We come to God's word, which reveals Jesus, and the Holy Spirit goes to work, and over time, we start looking more like Jesus, sounding more like Jesus, inflecting more like Jesus. We're transformed by his word. We're growing in him up to the full stature of Christ. Love Jesus, grow in Jesus, make disciples of Jesus. We, we don't... We don't just follow Jesus personally. We want others to follow Jesus. We want to help others follow Jesus. So right here, we want to share the gospel with whoever's around us. And then we want to take the gospel to the nations as he raises up more and more members to go out and serve short-term and mid-term and long-term and share with those who haven't heard. So this make disciples packed in that phrase is everything from local evangelism to global missions to discipleship. So once somebody believes, teaching them to obey what's in his word, what Jesus commands. Friends, um, church is only boring from the bleachers. On the field, it's awesome. On the field, it's exciting. I am... Um, I can watch basketball. Basketball is probably my favorite sport if I'm going to be watching something. I can watch basketball and just sit there and watch it and be okay just watching it. Baseball is a little unique. I have a hard time watching baseball without itching for a baseball. Like, I want to go grab the glove. I want to go into the yard. I want to throw the thing. Right? I want to hear that snap in the glove. And so my brother and I, we would, when we were kids, you know, we'd turn on a game and we'd watch you know, whoever it was, Johnny Bench or Fernando Valenzuela and Dale Murphy and some of our favorite, Ryan Sandberg, we'd watch some of our favorite players and we'd watch them for like two innings and next thing you know, we're in the front yard 
and we're throwing and we're sweating and we're doing Harry Carey impressions and we're playing an imaginary game and I'm throwing him a hard grounder and right after I throw the hard grounder, I'm, the, I'm on the base where the lead runner's coming, right? And so he's got to bring it in there and we're turning double plays and triple plays. If it's possible, we're turning quadruple plays. I mean, we're just awesome baseball is going on in the yard. And then we come back in and we're sweating and we stink to high heaven and we sit back on the couch. The beautiful thing about baseball is it's still on, right? <laughs> It's like the third inning now, right? <laughs> We've missed very little of the game, turns out. The Christian life, it's boring from the bleachers. It's awesome on the field. When, when, I, when we first moved to, um, to Brook Hills, um, there was only one thing, uh, essentially, that was in my trunk as I drove to, to the office. And it was, um, it was baseball stuff. It was two gloves, one for me and one for whoever and a baseball. And if the baseball got free when I hit, you know, when I hit the brakes, you could hear it rolling around in the back. I just always wanted to have just a baseball and two gloves because just the joy of that exchange. Christianity in Romans 15 is experiential Christianity. It's, it's don't sit in the bleachers. Just grab a ball, grab a couple gloves, one for you, one for somebody else, and let's grow. Let's do this. Let's grow in Christ. Let's not go through the motions. Let's give him our lives. Let's see what happens when the Holy Spirit takes over and makes the church come alive.